Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 203. This episode was recorded in a very special place. It reminded me of when I first started going to see music when I was in my teens. And it was very DIY. We would go to VFW halls and American Legions and it was for all ages shows. There were young people. It was music that we were interested in that we couldn't get other places. And it felt like a place where you could be among people who are interested in what you were interested in. It was a place that the noise inside would drown out all that other noise going on outside of the walls, out in society the things that we were trying to get a break from. Now, it doesn't just have to be music. There are places that feel really special as soon as you walk into them. It could be the sound of the place or the feel of it. There are many bars around the world that I've been in that you, you sort of feel the history of it. Partly it's the years and years of spilled drinks that are soaked into the wood that is sort of spitting out this, this smell of stale beer. But it's a personality that you can feel. Sometimes it's the aesthetic of the place. It could be a holy place. There are some you know, places of worship that you walk in and you feel something. I'm not particularly religious at all, but... I can still feel it in some of these places. I don't know. I don't know if it's the ghost of memories. I mean, some people say that perhaps things and objects and places can also retain memory and that like that's what being haunted is. is that's not actually a ghost, but it's like a feeling in a place that it's retained over the years. The place that I re recorded at today really tonight, was the Williamsburg Music Center. It is a jazz club here in Williamsburg, and it is one of the only minority-owned jazz clubs here in Brooklyn. And it's a beautiful space. There are It goes deep back, but and there are apartments above it. But it's a wonderful music venue that's small and feels really intimate, but also has a lot there. There's a recording studio. There are music lessons that go on. There's uh, open mics with poetry and comedy. There's live music performances. And there's pictures all over the walls from the years and from like the history of, of jazz and, and the personal history of my guest. So my guest owns the Williamsburg Music Center. He is a musician and a composer. He plays a whole lot of instruments. And he's a really fascinating and interesting guy. His name is Jerry Eastman. And Jerry was kind enough to invite me over to the club tonight to record with him before they have their live stream performance. It felt like a really special place, and it reminded me of some places that I've been both here in the States and in my travels. So thank you, Jerry, for, for hosting me there. I will link, as always, to 
the Williamsburg Music Center. And to find out more information about Jerry, just go to whatever app you're in and click on the episode and you'll see all the hyperlinks to get directly to those places. I'm also going to play a song right after this intro. It's about seven and a half minutes, so it's pretty long. So kick back, put your feet up and enjoy the sounds. It is called Just Like the First Time and it is by the Jerry Eastman Quintet. So that's what you're about to hear right now, and then you will hear my conversation with Jerry Eastman. Never free. 
Are you originally from New York? I was born in New York. Whereabouts? Born in the Bronx, Lincoln Hospital. And you lived Way there? Way back in the day. <laughs> yeah. You lived there for most of your childhood, or? No, I lived in, uh, mostly in Ithaca, New York. Oh. And I grew up, went to high school and college there. 
and uh, I moved back to New York in 1980, and I've been here ever since. Okay, my sister went to Ithaca. They've got a big music program. Yes, yes, yes. I went to Ithaca College. Ah, oh, very cool. Yeah. What uh, what are your like your your earliest memories of music? Uh, I don't know. I was probably 10, 11, and uh, I. I started buying jazz records back then, you know. At 11? Yeah. Wow. There was a record company called Record Club of America where you could buy albums for about $2. Yeah. And sometimes you could get like two or three for 10, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I started collecting records way back then and uh, started, my first instrument was the drums. My mother bought me a set of drums and then Later, I started playing guitar and bass and then acoustic bass. Wow, you got the whole band. And, uh, yeah, because back in those days, if you played in a band, most everybody could play guitar, bass, and drums, yeah. you know. Maybe not so well, but uh, you would have one main instrument, but everybody tried to play everything because... If you were playing rock and roll or blues, there was only three chords, you know what I mean? So yeah, you could get pretty good at three chords and that sort of thing. But uh, my whole focus was jazz, even at an early age. I was into jazz, so <clears throat> it uh, was a little bit more difficult. So once I started playing guitar and trying to be a jazz musician, it, uh, it was a little bit more intense. And uh, lucky there was a few people in the neighborhood who thought I might have a little talent, so there were a couple of college students who gave me music lessons and uh, <clears throat> a couple of older gentlemen who used to let me borrow their records because they knew I was into buying yeah. music. Because in those days, people didn't let you use their records. They were precious. You could scratch Nobody them. Nobody wanted to you. And, uh, but they thought it would be wise for me to, since I was into music, to borrow their records, so I found that kind of interesting. Do you remember the first record you bought? Oh, no, geez. That's, <laughs> oh. I liked a lot of singers back then, but I liked Jimmy Smith and, uh, of course, Wes Montgomery and Nancy Wilson, Dionne Warwick, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So did that come from your parents playing stuff, or did you listen well, on the radio? Well, my parents listened to jazz, you know what I mean? So my mother, she had, I remember she had Dakota State and records. Matter of fact, I've got a couple of my mother's records here with me, you know, Louis Armstrong records and <gasps> stuff that I, uh, when she passed, I took those mementos with me. Yeah. So, so yeah, I remember listening to jazz and classical in the house. My brother's a classical pianist, Jewy Seisman. If you look him up, you'll oh wow, you'll know who he is. So, so that that was always happening. Were there any uh, clubs or performance spaces near your home when you grew up? Yeah, yeah. As a kid, I would play at dances when I was in high school. Wow, at the local Elks and fraternity parties, and I used to while I was in high school. I knew this guy, Mike Matthews, who was the inventor of electroharmonics. Really? And so I used to play in his band, and we used to go all over the place, Dartmouth, all of the colleges, wow. all over the sort of the eastern 
place, so we would do all of the Colgate and whatever, you know. <laughs> what are you doing? Isca College, Cornell, all those places. Were you doing covers or you guys wrote stuff? Uh, we were just playing uh, R&B. Hmm. And, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I would, they would always have student teachers from Cornell teaching us. And I would eventually, because we were playing so much, I would see some of my student teachers drunk and <laughs> screwed up. And they would see me in class the next day and they'd be like, oh, my God, you, I hope you're not going to talk about what you <laughs> yeah. saw. No, it's all right. You know, you just hope your parents don't hear about it, what you were doing. When I was uh, a teenager, I was into a much different music tradition, but it was uh, it, the punk scene in New York City and underground music. Mm -hmm. But for me, as like a very angsty teenager, I liked the music, but it also offered me a space to be in a place mm -hmm. with like like-minded individuals and people who felt like at a very young age we were getting like political, right? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if at a young age if the music scene offered that too on top of just like sonically liking the music? Well, when I was young, the music scene for me was all black and blues, jazz, R&B, all that sort of thing. And uh, it became more political later on because this was during the time of the uh, uh, civil rights movement, yeah. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and all that sort of thing. So later on, as a jazz musician, of course, it became much more political in the 70s and the 80s. It was all about, you know, uh, black pride and and revolution and, and, and uh, you know, fuck the pig and all yeah. that sort of thing, <laughs> you know, which really hasn't gotten much better yeah. 50 years later. Uh, so, so, so that was, jazz has always been a political revolutionary music that always addressed all the things that were happening in the black community. You know what I mean? From Coltrane, all of them, Archie Shep, uh, you know, you know, Art Blakey, they all had very nationalistic, Afrocentric music. You know, if you go through and look at the titles, you can see. You know, yeah. everything from everything from Herbie Hancock's "Watermelon Man" to songs from my father by Horace Silver. You know, so it, it's always been a political music. There are a lot of people that would love to be an artist, right? As like like a career artist. Mm -hmm to essentially, I guess, in many ways, be your own boss. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a very difficult thing to actually accomplish. Well, one has to make a commitment. Mm. Uh, you can't have a full-time job and be any kind of artist. It doesn't work. Yeah. To, to think that you can be a part-time artist is, is a losing game. Luckily, I've never had to really work for anybody full-time, you know what I mean? And, and that's why I'm here today, only because that as time goes on, you, you inevitably collect the things you need if you stay true to the art form that you're in. People who are in time-sensitive art forms, such as dance and maybe theater, 
because, you know, your, your career is based on youth usually. Yeah. Stories that we tell in theaters don't usually evolve around geriatrics, yeah. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so if you're in one of those fields, it's pretty assurably you're not going to make much out of your arts career if you have a nine-to-five through your 20s and 30s. Yeah. So you must stick with your craft, at least through that period. And if you find that you're not financially secure, then you've given it your best college try and you can kind of let it go and just become a weekend, like weekend warrior, yeah, so yeah. to speak. But you can give up your 20s and 30s. If you're going to be an artist, you have to start as a teenager. Mm. It's, it's not, very few people can... Uh, start in their 20s and 30s and make a go of it. But Grandma Moses started in her 90s, so it's, it's not true that it can't happen. You know, so, but I would say if you really want to be an artist, just go ahead and starve. It's easy to starve in your 20s and yeah. early 30s, but no one wants to starve in their 40s, 50s. So get it out the way first and give it the old, like I say, give it the old college try. And then see what happens. Were you ever at a point where you had to go one way or the other and you thought like, yeah, I'm going to make a career of this? No, I was lucky. I was lucky that uh, it went pretty well from the time I was in my early 20s and uh, I was able to sustain myself. And uh, when I came to New York, the first thing I did was buy this building back in 1980. And I've been here ever since. Wow. And... Uh, I always tell artists, uh, the first thing you should look for is a place to live and buy. Yeah. Because you can only not pay your rent for a month or two. Yeah. <laughs> but you can live in a building that you've purchased for many years without paying. So all you artists, go find yourself some, some ghetto property somewhere. So I was born in 1986. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't here in 1980. Right. But of what I know pretty close to the water is there were a lot of factories here. Mm-hmm. seemed pretty industrial. Yes. What was the neighborhood like when you bought it? What it was, was an aging, uh, turn-of-the-century neighborhood uh, with a lot of small buildings like this one, which were factories. This particular building was a single-family building that was a... I think some kind of a drugstore or chocolate factory because I left, as you can see by that back wall, the, uh, the, the ceramic tiles on the wall that used to be some kind of a soda fountain or whatever yeah. it was. And uh, this was basically a neighborhood who didn't have any infrastructure for people. There were no grocery stores, no restaurants. It was just a bunch of turn-of-the-century factories and all sorts of things like that, a few hotels. This particular neighborhood was the banking center of Long Island because the ferry used to be where the Williamsburg Bridge is. Oh, okay. That used to be a ferry stop. So if you go down Broadway, there's a couple of uh, opera houses and there's several banks. There's about five or six banks between uh, Robling and the end of the block, there's like three banks that used to be banks within between here and the uh, East River. So this was quite a 
spot in, in the 1940s, and I mean the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. This particular building was built in 1910. So this was kind of a, you know, from what I can tell with the plans, it, it was two floors where the family lived, which were just two apartments, and then later on in the 50s, it was cut up into four apartments, you know yeah. what I mean? And uh, so that's, that's how I got it and did what I'm doing. And we're also just like one stop on the train from Manhattan, so I'd yes. imagine that's good for people coming in to well, see I shows. Well, I knew that this place was going to come alive at some point, but not like it has. I, yeah. I figured we're one, you know, you can walk to Manhattan from here in 30 minutes, you know what I mean? And if you jog, it's 15 minutes. So uh, when I first came here, I used to have to walk to the Lower East Side to get a decent Chinese dinner, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Because there was nothing over here. There were one, maybe two Hispanic restaurants and one old diner that somebody had for about 100 years right up the street, which is quite a famous little joint now. But uh, there was nothing here back then. As a matter of fact, the city was giving buildings away for a dollar when I moved here. Oh, it, would you say that like the center of jazz in New York is Harlem or Manhattan? Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Yeah. So you're sort of like the lone beacon of of light here. Well, not now. Well, no. I'm the only arts organization now. I was the first organization in Williamsburg, first arts organization. And uh, not only that, I'm the only person of color that even owns a building in this neighborhood. Yeah. Because it is so highly gentrified and they've bought everybody out. You know what I mean? There's a few buildings that are still uh, have Hispanic origins from the 50s. But uh, this place, they've pretty much um, bought everybody out. Matter of fact, I can honestly say that one of the things I'm most noted for in this neighborhood is the only person of color who didn't sell out. Have people offered? Oh, yeah. They've offered me millions and millions (laughs) of dollars for this building. I'm on the corner. They're building a four-star hotel next to me right now. Really? Yes. Wow. And they wanted to be at this corner so they could have the bridge view. So they offered me tens of millions. And people say, how could you not take it? Because it's my home. Yeah. I live here. You know. I don't want to move. I'm too old to be moving around. <laughs> well, when you bought this building, I'm assuming then your initial idea was, I'm also going to convert this into a venue. Yes. I bought it for this space right here. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Because I needed a place to work because I'm a composer and uh, I needed a work room to work in and I needed a space to work out of. And so now it's one of the premier jazz clubs in New York City. It's one of the most vibrant, you know, and it's artist run. And uh, we're doing we're doing totally upscale uh, video in here. These are our cameras. And if you look up in the ceiling, you will see all of our microphones. We're a complete recording studio and oh, wow. a, a complete uh, video. So we do live streaming, we we do uh, podcasts, we do all of the electronic, uh, uh, you know, new 
way of communicating. We have our booth up there on that loft with all of our electronics. And uh, when, when we open back up, not only will we be back as a performance space for live music, but we will also be doing a full-time electronic streaming and podcast and all kinds of programs, comedy, poetry, yeah, I've seen everything. You, you have open mic. Yeah, everything, because by the time we open up, we'll be expert at it. We've been only doing it for about five, six, seven weeks. But by the time the country finally opens up, we will be totally on top of the game. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting to see across industries how the pandemic has sort of forced people to adapt in certain ways mm-hmm. that are going to stick around post-pandemic. Right. And it would seem like, yeah, like it's put you in a place where you need to live stream now, but that's also going to be great for the right. future. We, we were fortunate that uh, uh, a few companies even before the pandemic, were interested in us. And we got grants from several different corporations, Hennessy and different uh, companies. So we were able to maintain our staff and the musicians and artists. We've been able to keep them semi-busy, not fully uh, monetized as we were before the pandemic, but we've been steadily working throughout this whole thing, and we hope to, once it ends, to be bigger and better. Yeah. Like Biden says, we're going to build back better. <laughs> we're going to really be slamming when this crap is over. And I must tell you that I am so happy that we have changed the White House because that was a disaster. I'm going to use Donald Trump's word, a disaster like you've never seen before. It was the worst you'd ever seen. And to have a bunch of white supremacists attack the seat of our government, and they weren't Muslims, they weren't black Americans, they were white boys attacking their own country, screaming to kill the vice president and Nancy Pelosi. It can't get any worse than that. (laughs) Well, I think that's why, I mean, spaces like this are so important for a lot of people because when everything outside of the walls Mm -hmm. seems so freaking crazy, like it offers a space, again, for for people to express themselves, to feel carefree, to feel safe, to be enjoying themselves. So that's what we're doing. We're here. Uh, We're doing our shows. We have a program that we call Black Finances Matter. So we're we're also in between our musical presentations. We're talking about all types of different ways to help monetize people of color. And we're supporting all black entrepreneurs. We we talk about their products without charge. uh, Because really for my community, it doesn't really matter who the government is. It doesn't change for us. I've been around to see five or six, seven, eight presidents, and it's, it hasn't really changed for us. Yeah. We have to do it ourselves. So we've, we've started this program, you know, Black Finances Matters, and we're keeping the music alive. And uh, we're, we're hoping to see a change. We're, we're going to give Biden the 
chance and time that he needs to pull it together because uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've been around a long time and I have never seen a disaster that I saw within Trump and the nonsense that he was doing. So, so this, is, this is really something for me. How often are you writing music? I've been writing music ever since like 1973. I've been writing. Like every day? Not every day. No, 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 no. no. I used to for, for some time, but uh, now, now I'm just, uh, right now I'm kind of going through my catalog. Ah. So uh, we've been, every week I, I add one new composition that I've written at some time every week. So let me ask you about your podcast. Is it just sound or is it also visual? Oh, it's just sound. So people are just okay. listening to us right okay. now. Okay, okay. Yeah, and the reason for that is, you know, pre-pandemic, I'm doing this from the road, mm-hmm. sometimes with no Wi-Fi signal, no anything. So mm-hmm. it, it gets pretty dicey sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Have you, re- have you ever performed overseas? Oh, yeah. It's all over. Really? Yes, yes. Uh, Japan. Wow. All over Europe, Africa. You know, are, are crowds different in different countries, like in the way they react to the music? Uh, one thing about music, everybody reacts to music the same. If uh. music is good, everybody's happy. Okay. If it's bad, they listen for a while and they leave. Yeah. But music is one of the most important parts of human development. There is absolutely no group of people that music isn't the heart of their existence. Yeah. I don't care if you go to a tribe in South America or in Colombia or Venezuela or in Africa or, or in Tibet or Mongolia. In the evening around a fire, that's where everybody sings, dances, they always do their thing. So one thing about jazz is it's welcome in almost every community. I've never played anywhere where any the people didn't enjoy it. It isn't, a, it's a music that is quite universal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some musics are just for the people in that neighborhood. You know what I mean? It's that, and you can just look at what world music is. If you want to talk about world music, you can probably say, well, black American music is everywhere. And then if you want to, you know, look at the different strains, you could say, well, maybe sitar music is basically in India, or you could say, you know, flute music is basically in Ireland. They use flute for everything, you know what I mean? But black American music is pretty universal around the world, and that's what makes what we do interesting, because uh, if you talk about flamenco, flamenco or something, somebody in Java might not know what that is. But if you play jazz, they'll say, oh, yeah, that's jazz. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, so uh, that's one of the things that, as a musician, that I've had a chance to travel around the world. Uh, you know, when you go to different countries, you might get in an elevator and you'll hear Miles Davis in the elevator playing. You know what I mean? Or you'll be in... Tokyo, and you'll see a big picture of Eddie Murphy or yeah. something. You know what I mean? So American culture is everywhere, and and 
and music is important to everybody. So that I, I know for sure. And I have heard a, a lot of indigenous music from all around the world. And the more uh, tribal it is, the more exciting and energetic it is. It's when music gets to be too educated and, and refined that it becomes boring uh -huh. and uh, uninteresting. But you go to a, out to the Midwest and sit around for the, some Apaches, you know, making music around a fire, you'll be heavily involved, you know what yeah. I mean? Where do you think, like, your biggest sources of inspiration come from when you're writing? Is it just life? Just life. Yeah. Life, love, politics. Yeah. That's where it all comes from. It's either one of the three, you know. Yeah. Your human condition, your love life, or your finances. You know, that's, you can find that those three things and all the genres. Often it's when those things aren't going so well that a lot of music yeah, comes. Well, that's what the blues is about. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Do you ever draw, like you were talking about um, music in different places in the world, do you ever draw like influence or inspiration for music outside of jazz? Uh, yes. I, I mean, of course I've studied classical and all of these forms. So, uh, you know, my technicals, the technical side of my development is classical music to some extent, you know what I mean? And uh, of course I'm writing music in, you know, standard music form. So I'm, I'm, I'm influenced by all of the great white composers and I'm influenced by all of the great black composers and of course the uh, contemporary music of America is, is, is my soundtrack you know so I have been lucky to have played with many of the greatest artists in the world and and uh, that's my inspiration and I, I, I chose kind of jazz and blues and gospel as my background and that's where most of my inspiration comes from because basically as far as blues and gospel is the foundation to all the music that comes out of America. Yeah. There's absolutely no music that is not really black music. Country Western is just black music played by white people you know, all of that, because there's no tradition of any of that in Europe, you know what I mean? Right. And every European rock artist or, you know, whatever, you know, hard rock, they're just playing old blues, you know what I mean? So there's, it's, um, if it wasn't for the blues, there'd be none of those other genres. Yeah. Because none of those existed before black people. But black music in Africa was totally intact. If you go and listen to black string music and black traditional uh, 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 tribal music, it's just basically the blues. 
and all kinds of things that jazz musicians extrapolate from it that's part of our basic culture. All of our music is basically West African. Yeah. And uh, the music of America is basically the music of slavery and because these things uh, are still in existence today. A lot of what was happening in slavery is still happening today. What happened to George Floyd was just what happened in slavery. That same type of shit, all the murder of all these young black men and women. It's just an extension of what happened during slavery. A lot of people don't realize that the whole American police department was developed to catch slaves. There was no such a thing as a police department. That was something that came out of slavery. Early American law was all done by the sheriff. The sheriff was your basic law enforcement. The police department was developed just to catch runaway slaves. And it's sort of almost doing the same damn thing now. Only instead of catching them to go to work, catching them to go to prison. So that's kind of a little quick synopsis of what, you know, America is about and still is. The, the corporate and political structure yeah. acts in such a way as a mm -hmm. colonial power still yeah. in its practices. And, uh, and, uh, and also, once, once that whole institution, which we call a particularly... Uh, 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 confused institution ended, then we imported Italians and, and Irishmen to be the new slaves or indentured. And uh, it kind of still kept going through the 1920s where your immigrants came in and worked for almost nothing people would come here to the America for the promised land and uh, they might end up living in the Lower East Side, tend to a room, which was very common from 1900 to 1930. You know what I mean? The only thing that really made America very prosperous was the Second World War. Because after the Second World War, it was boom town in America. And uh, now we're in, as far as I can tell, one of the greatest recessions of all time. And it was kind of sad, but unfortunately Trump took us to a new low because we have 400,000 dead people. And we have a country totally divided and Racism has roared his head up so loud. I don't know if Biden can quiet it, but we'll see what we can do. If we can, I'm just hoping that we can, which is a pipe dream on my part, lock Trump up and maybe quelch all of the negativity that he brought to the surface. You know what I mean? This guy is. This guy's the worst thing that happened to us in the 20th century. He, well, I should say the 21st century, yeah. but the worst thing that happened to us in the 20th and 21st century.
So, so much for that. We don't want to waste any time on that. <laughs> well, I, I had a thought in my head before when you were mentioning uh, drawing inspiration from performing and traveling with some of like the greatest musicians to play. And I had seen, I think on the website that you had played with the Isley Brothers. W were these part of like ensembles or how did no, that come No, this is just when I was a kid. Uh, when I was in college, you know, I was in, oh, I was in high school and that young, I, I told you wow. that, um, that guy, Mike Matthews, that, that, uh, invented electroharmonics and we used to play together. He used to bring artists to Cornell. He went to Cornell. That's how I met him in Ithaca and he brought them to Ithaca and I got a chance to play with them. And, uh, also, some I got a chance to play with Ruth Brown when I was in high school and a couple of people. One time, the bass player didn't show up, so I played. But uh, Did that feel extraordinary to you? Well, yes, <laughs> you know, because back then, uh, black artists used to play what they called the Chitlin Circuit. They used to play, and it was segregation back in the 60s, you know, 70s. America was segregated. There was, you know... Uh, so I would see Reetha Franklin and James Brown and in small venues, you know, wow. Tina Turner. And you'd, you'd be in a club about the size of this room that we're in and it'd be packed with 100 people and there'd be James Brown on the stage with 10 musicians, you know what I mean? Wow. And that's the way it was back then. You didn't, people didn't play in ballparks and in football stadiums. They played in little clubs. And in a way, the music was much better, and it was in our neighborhoods. It wasn't until the 70s and 80s that uh, these large venues happened. And, 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 and back then, there was no such thing as a disc jockey or a, a uh, what do they call them now? Uh, well, the rapping thing hadn't happened, so you didn't have people playing records. Uh. The only time you would hear music on a record if you were at a house party, you know what I mean? The DJs, there was no such thing as a DJ in a club. All the clubs were live music, so. Yeah. I had one last question for yes. you then. I saw on the website that you do something with an organization in Kenya, and I was curious about that. That is an organization that uh, builds playgrounds for women's prisons. Ah. Because in Kenya, when women go to jail, their kids go with them. They're juvenile children, her babies that are... So this was started by a woman, I'm not sure what her name is, but she's a, fr fr a friend of, of mine, her daughter, worked with this organization. Her name is uh, Sienna uh, Bukowski. I'm not pronouncing her last name right, uh, but anyway, uh, this is an organization that builds playgrounds so that while the women are in prison, their kids can have some type of a normal life. So wow. it's a very, I thought, worthwhile cause to have on my yeah. uh, website because I, I had traveled to Kenya a couple, two or three times uh, in the last four or five years before this, and so I got to know these people and. Uh, yeah, that's what that is. That's 
That's what that organization oh, does. That's amazing. And if you can edit that in when you look at the website again and get the, the right people's names, but uh, that's what that is. Uh, the young lady who I knew, uh, her maiden name was uh, Sienna Dentler. And uh, I think her last name is Brukowski. Cool. But uh, yes, give them a plug. Yeah, so I'll, I'll link to that. I'll link to the website so mm. people can check out the live streams. They can right. check out the club. Um, I'll wrap it here, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jerry. And again, uh, we're the Williamsburg Music Center here. Yeah. Our uh, website is wmcjazz.org or .com. Uh, we broadcast every Friday. Check us out on uh, Williamsburg Music on Facebook, 9 o'clock every Friday. And uh, if you like what you see, you can always donate to WMC Donate or the hashtag WMC Jazz. So thank you very much, my friend. That is a wrap, folks on episode 203 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. That was a really special interview in a really special place with a really special person. So thank you so much to Jerry and the WMC for hosting this conversation. Thank you, Voyagers. We're off and running here in 2021. Got a lot of stuff planned, maybe some summer travel that I'm excited about. And of course, lots of more episodes. So stay tuned in, uh, subscribe, like, rate, review, tell your friends. We are off and running. All right, folks, thank you so much. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you all very, very soon.